0: welcome to the city road podcast join us on city road as we travel along the frontiers of urban and housing research follow us on apple podcast and find out more about the show at cityroadpod.org today on city road podcast we're talking about growing pains Not the type of growing pains we usually associate with awkward teenagers, but the growing pains that we all feel. The growing pains of big cities. Australia has one of the fastest growing populations in the world, with most of us living in major urban centres. And this puts enormous pressure on planners, who have to deal with the city's growing pains. And state governments might not have the resources to cope with the development which is needed to keep up with this growth. Associate Professor Glenn Searle from the University of Queensland, an adjunct in the University of Sydney's Urban Housing Lab, talks with us about how other big cities are dealing with increasing populations, and what it might take for Australians to have the difficult discussion we need to have about population growth. Glenn, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. I'd like to start off with this idea of growing pains in cities, and you've written about Australian cities having growing pains. What are growing pains when it comes to cities?
1: Well, basically they're um, pains that come about from rapid population growth. So um, Australian cities uh, have got some of the fastest uh, growth rates in the Western world. So on the um, sort of recent OECD figures, I think we're the uh, the third fastest uh, population increase uh, country um, in the Western world, and that's only Luxembourg and Israel ahead of us. So in terms of the larger Western countries, we're having the fastest rate of population growth and then uh, about um, up to 90 percent of that growth is actually occurring in the biggest four cities, so that that sort of rapid population growth is being very focused on those big four cities, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, and Perth.
0: Right. So when we hear stories in the media about Australia's population going crazy, there's a particular geography to that population growth, is what you're saying? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. So it's being focused in the big four cities, and um, I guess the... Concern about that is that that brings along with it the need for um, new houses to house the population, it needs uh, new infrastructure to house the population. So the issue then becomes, you know, how do you sort of then cope with the housing and infrastructure needs to accommodate that rapid growth?
0: Mm. And I wanted to touch on all of these, I guess, when we think about cities and we think about growth, we think about housing, transport, jobs, social service or social infrastructure so things like hospitals and schools so let's touch on those one by one what's the relationship between population growth and housing and how might we think about that problem and uh, i guess address it through the planning system maybe
1: oh well i think it's fairly simple i mean the the more population increases the more houses you need because the the um, each population increase has a certain um, increase in terms of households and each household needs a, a separate dwelling so as you increase population, um, you need more houses. And in fact, you need more houses than the population increase because um, uh, over the last uh, 50 years or so, households have been getting smaller so that for a given population, you actually need to increase the housing supply to, um, to, to accommodate that population. So the, the extra population adds to that sort of existing pressure.
0: Hmm. Are there changes in our population that make the type of housing stock we build and where we build it important?
1: Uh, look, that's a good question. Um, our, our population is increasing pretty well throughout the whole kind of demographic spectrum. It's increasing at the at the um, ageing end, um, and that's one reason why we're trying to in- increase our migration intake because that sort of then sort of um, alleviates a bit of that ageing pressure. But but nevertheless, the ageing is occurring, and so we're getting a lot of need for. Dwellings which accommodate um, older people, uh, particularly, I guess, smaller dwellings which are in accessible locations and close to amenities and so forth. Um, but, you know, we're, we're, getting, um, we're getting sort of population increase in, in the working age sector as well. So they need um, sort of um, family dwellings, um, uh, you know, maybe detached houses, but sort of bigger apartments and so forth. So, you know, there's a kind of range of housing needed throughout the demographic spectrum.
0: Mm. Uh, what about transport so population increases in relation to transport's quite an interesting one if we look at what happens or what various asian countries have done in the face of big population and transport questions i'm thinking about places here like singapore with their relatively small geographical location a relatively large population and a very very sophisticated public transport system how do we think about transport questions in a city like Sydney, perhaps?
1: Um, Well, um, it starts off uh, from thinking about what the sort of travel, travel needs of an increasing population will be, and then it's a question of how you actually sort of transfer that extra demand into either public transport or private transport so whether you build more roads or whether you build more railways or cycle trucks or whatever becomes the question and and that's where you get into um, real problems so in a place like Singapore uh, which is which has got a sort of fairly centralized economy uh, a centralized government where the the government's prepared to put a lot of funding into into social infrastructure and into to social transport and so forth um, they're prepared to put in a decent sort of public transport system and they've also got the because of their kind of, I guess, political strength as a government, they're prepared to put in congestion pricing too. Um, And so that's that's a politically very... I guess you call it brave step, which, which, uh, which governments haven't been prepared to take in Australian cities. But in Singapore, you know, they're, they're kind of a very strong government and they're prepared to put in congestion pricing. So that sort of stops the traffic coming in by roads into central Singapore. And then they kind of offset that with an excellent public transport system. So those things come from sort of strong government, strong political leadership and so forth. And, and, and I have to say, you know, we've been lacking that generally in the Australian cities. What have the
0: the Australian government been doing in terms of infrastructure provision? I know that we've got a lot of contentious, particularly private road projects in Sydney. So, what is the relationship between government leadership and the provision of public and private transport infrastructure in somewhere like Sydney?
1: Yeah, well, I guess I guess you sort of need to frame an answer to that in terms of um, how those things are sort of paid for, and then and what the government uh why the government wants things to be paid for in a certain way so I guess for me, the starting point is that the, the government um, doesn't want to kind of borrow a lot more money to pay for things like public transport. And that gets back to um, the fact that it doesn't want a lot of debt on its books. And so, and that in turn comes from the fact that it doesn't want to borrow very much because that would seem to threaten its credit ratings. And credit ratings are seen by the state governments to be important in terms of attracting investment. So, that a lack of debt is seen as a kind of positive investment signal to the private sector investment coming in. So, all governments want to encourage investment to come in. So, coming out of all that, what you get is a kind of reluctance by government to borrow money for things like public transport. Now, public transport uh, really only sort of, in terms of the fares you raise from it, really only cover the operational costs. So that where you get the capital costs from becomes an issue for states moving into debt, if that's if that's the way you fund it, um, rather than sort of private investment. Private investment won't go there, you know, because it can't sort of offset its um, borrowing costs. And so what you then get is the state government's preferring to build, say, toll motorways um, because the private sector will come in, it will It will um, put a certain toll on in order to pay back its capital and operating costs. And so state governments see that as an easier way out of the, the transport problems. Mm. And you've written
0: about being hostage to the growth machine. Is this exactly what you are talking about when you're talking about being hostage to the growth machine?
1: Well, I think, uh, yeah, that's part of it. Uh, there's a lot of private sector. For example, there's an infrastructure lobby which sort of wants more private sector infrastructure to be built because that sort of favours the construction companies and the financiers who finance all that. Um, but but beyond that, you know, there's a lot of pressure to... Um, on governments to keep the economy expanding, to keep population expanding, because a lot of people benefit from that expansion. So people like uh, anybody who owns property benefits from the rising property prices, any businesses which sort of increase their markets with extra population, they benefit. Um, you know, and, and all, A lot of businesses benefit from the extra population. So they are always encouraging more um, Uh, more expansion of population and expansion of the economy. So there's a lot of pressure on governments to kind of, um, you know, to sort of fall into line with that and to kind of do what businesses want, um, you know, and and therefore, you know, they they tend to kind of, you know, favour growth. The other thing I think that's worth mentioning is that in Australia, there's also, with our federal system, there's competition between the states and Uh, And and the rate of population growth of the capital cities is seen as a kind of marker of your success as a government. So if if your growth rate, for example, in Sydney falls a bit behind Melbourne's, as it has done in the last few years, that's seen as a a sort of negative for the state government. The fact that you're not growing fast is seen as an indictment against your capacity to govern.
0: What should we do in the face of the growth argument, the growth machine argument? Is there another side to this debate? Does it preference economic value over other types of social values that are important in places like Sydney or Melbourne?
1: Yeah, well, I think I think there's a couple of answers there, that within the market sort of kind of um, framework, if you like, that a lot of the kind of um, things that are important um, in terms of, you know, the way we live, living standards, amenity and so on, are not properly valued by the market. But then there are other things which are, you know, impossible to, to, for the market to value. So things like, um, I guess, natural amenity and, and, and sort of streetscape and heritage and, and, uh, and trees and all that kind of stuff, you know, they're not really sort of part of the equation. And all those things are actually threatened by growth so that... The growth argument then comes into, you know, into opposition with some of those things which we value uh, in terms of our lifestyle. So, you know, going for growth is, is um, you know, is, is, is can be very negative in ways that we, we kind of feel are important in our lives, uh, but the market, you know, doesn't respond to those things. Mm.
0: What's interesting in there is there seems to be a connection between population growth and economic growth, but maybe we should separate those two things out. Uh, in terms of our response to them. Maybe they need to be managed as two separate types of processes.
1: Yeah, that, that's a tricky one. I mean, because population growth brings economic growth. Unless everybody stands a loom for, then that means that the um, GDP and, and production levels go up. So that it's, it's not that easy to separate those out. Um, but, I mean, essentially, I mean, governments should be governing for people, not for the economy. And so that we should be focusing on you know, um, the effects on people rather than sort of you know, the size of national production and so forth. And and so, you know, I, I'd agree that we, we should be separating these mm. things out and we should be focusing on the people side of it for sure.
0: Mm. So what role does the planning system have in all of this in managing population and economic growth and, I guess, amenity and... You know the public good, if you like. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that the planning system is supposed to be looking after all those things. You know, that the, the planning is there for the the public interest, and and the public interest incorporates, you know, social and and uh, environmental sustainability as well as economic sustainability. It incorporates uh, cultural issues and so on. So, you know, the planning system is um, can can do these things well, or it can do these things badly. And I think. Um, what I've been arguing is that the planning system doesn't do some of these things very well because it just doesn't have the resources to do it. And, and there, are ver- there are various reasons for that. But basically, the planning system, you know, in this climate of sort of fairly rapid growth, is, is being shortchanged the resources.
0: Mm. Can you give me an example, first of all, of a, a good planning outcome in terms of managing our cities and managing the growth question?
1: Hmm, good question. Um, I, mean, I, mean, <laughs> I am going to ask you yeah. about some not so good examples. Yeah, but I look, 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 certainly, I mean, I mean um, you can't say that planning is, is, is sort of going completely bad in all areas. It certainly isn't. And there's plenty of examples of good planning. I mean, what I'd like to see is, you know, the, the good planning examples sort of well outweigh the bad ones. But in terms hmm. of good planning... Maybe the good planning goes unnoticed. Well, I think it does to some extent because certainly newspapers and so on they like to report the bad stuff and, and there's not so much good stuff. But for example, there's I mean for example Central Park, which is a, a big um, development on an old brewery site in inner Sydney at Chippendale. Um, I think that's a, a good example of good planning. You've got very close access to Central Station. You've got a kind of big public space being created there. You've got sort of environmentally sustainable buildings with tri-generation and and green walls and so forth. So um, and 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 the, the architecture is also very good. So to me that's an example of a, of a good development. Um, um, and there are others too, you know, like the Harold Park Raceway development um, is also probably a pretty good one. Um, the Little Bay development that, that Landcom did uh, in southeast Sydney, uh, I've, I've taken students around there, and I think that's that's very good. I mean, the problem. There is that that's good planning in terms of architecture and landscape and so on, but but it's for a fairly high price sector of the market. So then you run into issues of, okay, good planning, but good planning comes at a price, and and if it's really good planning incorporating all the latest sustainability features and so on, it can make it less affordable for people. So, you know, there's a kind of a, a sort of a wicked devil's problem there. You know that you can either have um, cheap housing which is affordable, which is which is not very good planning, or you can have you know great planning which is actually more expensive. So um, there was a, f- a book written uh, several decades now which talked about a mansion or no house. You can only have gold-plated standards, which produce fantastic physical outcomes, but it uh, makes it very unaffordable. So that's that's the dilemma for planners, I think.
0: Mm okay natalie's not so good planning outcomes have you got any classic examples of what we should try to avoid when we're thinking about managing growth in cities and urban planning
1: well yeah i mean there's a pretty large field to choose from here man i mean i mean let's let's take greenfield expansion for example you're looking at um um, one example which i sort of found was the expansion of brisbane um, into the koala habitats in southeast queensland and and what you're finding there is that even though koala Habitat preservation policies have come into force since about 2009. The rate of clearance of that habitat has actually increased since those policies have been there. So the planning has been totally ineffective. Uh, there's there's a lot of banks here, woodland, which is kind of threatened in, in Perth's expansion. Um, once you get further into the city, you're getting things like um, central Melbourne's um, housing, which is... Um, Producing shoebox apartments, um, you know, some bedrooms without windows, that kind of thing, uh, at densities which are actually greater than Hong Kong and Manhattan and Tokyo, um, and and then the whole sort of argument about motorways versus public transport, the kind of predilection of in in, in say Sydney and Melbourne and and Brisbane towards motorways against public transport has been, um, I think, disgraceful.
0: Okay. So there's some pretty broad brush strokes looking at the city and what's occurred in terms of projects. If we look more specifically at the planning levers themselves, the instruments, what might we do in a very practical sense with the planning system?
1: Um, Well, I think the planning system needs more resources for a start, so um, it it needs... um Planners to, to you know to be out there doing strategic planning, and it needs planners to kind of evaluate controls better, and it needs planners to um, you know um, do the. Uh, environmental impact sort of stuff better etc. So, so in other words measuring kind of the negative effects of, of development you know should be part of the planning process and then putting controls in to prevent those negative effects. So that that's all part of kind of resourcing planning properly. So if you look at for example what's happening in Sydney is that the planning department is part of a kind of range of departments outside health and education and, and uh, justice which requires a planning dividend to be kind of you know, so-called planning dividend to be made each year, which actually cuts back their staff, so that if they want a kind of salary increase, they've got to cut back staff to afford the salary increase. So that that sort of short changes departments like Department of Planning. So they they therefore have to spend money on consultants to do a lot of what was used to be done in-house, and and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but but it just indicates the lack of resources in the planning area. Um, but I guess, I guess more widely, you know, the, the, the resources problem beyond that is, is the fact that state governments themselves, you know, are, are not properly resourced. So the state governments, you know, focus on what, the, what seem to be really high priorities like health and education and so forth, understandably, and planning seems to get, you know, behind. But the state governments as a whole lack resources to kind of do their job properly in the face of population increases. So the, the taxation increases, the federal government loves population increase in a way because it gets all the, the income tax from all this kind of extra production. How, how does that work? Well, um, uh, the income tax system uh, is, is in terms of company and individual tax, belongs to the federal government. They're the main sources of taxation. Uh, Even excise duties and so forth are a federal government thing. Uh, And the federal government also exercises GST, which then does go back to the states, but not in sufficient quantities to offset the state government constitutional responsibilities to provide the infrastructure that's required. So the federal government cops the revenue, but then the responsibilities for the infrastructure provision go back to the states, and so the states are shortchanged, and so things like planning... Lack the money, and you lack the money to put in the public transport, so forth, you know, and you have to get the private sector to do a whole lot of stuff, and that sort of distorts the kind of planning outcomes.
0: So, if we kind of compare that to somewhere like Singapore with a very strong central government, mm. they have both the political power and they have the economic resources to actually plan the city and implement that plan themselves, where in Australia, what you're saying is the tension between the federal government and the states means that power is split across that divide and the resources are not always there either. Yeah,
1: well, it's not just, it was not just power, but it's the financial powers that are split. So in a place like America, for example, which has also got a federal system, the, the tax raising capacities of the states and the cities are actually much greater. Mm-hmm. And so they don't have this kind of problem that, that Australia has where the taxation kind of powers under the Constitution are very much focused on the, on the national government or, or the states actually gave some of those powers to the federal government way back. So, um, you know, that distortion is called vertical fiscal imbalance, that's the economists argue for it. But it's actually a really important term because it means that, you know, the, the money goes to the, the top of the government system and, and the kind of the, the, the people that have to do the work are mainly in the middle and the lower levels. Mm.
0: A vertical fiscal imbalance. Yeah, and can, we you ta- have- can you just explain that to me in kind of simple terms? <clears throat>
1: Okay, what that means is, I mean, in, in, in terms of the vertical, you're talking about the um, the difference between the kind of the federal government at the top and the states in the middle particularly, and to some extent, local government at the bottom level. So that's the vertical element. Fiscal just means the the um, the amount of money um, that, that governments have got to play around with, their total revenue and their total spending. So that's the fiscal. And so there's an imbalance between um, the, the revenue and expenditure that comes in uh, at those different levels, uh, in contrast to the responsibilities that those governments have at those different levels. So that Constitutionally, the states have got responsibility for everything except those things nominated in the Constitution like external affairs, defence, money, telecommunications and, and um, airports and so on. But that's, that's not a big sort of part of the total picture. So that as a result, you get all these kind of arrangements between federal and state governments for you know, sharing health expenditure, sharing education expenditure and all those kinds of things. So it's pretty messy. But, but the bottom line is that you know, the, the federal government's got the kind of taxing powers that the states don't have and which the states do really need to, um, you know, to, to raise the money for their infrastructure.
0: Hmm. I guess the downside of the American model is your city can go broke.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. That's right. I mean, I wouldn't... I'd, I'd still prefer our system. I mean, before you can get some sort of kind of Commonwealth state negotiations on the fairer of sort of sharing, because in America, yeah, there's very little national support for, um, you know, for places that are not doing so well in the national economy. We've got a kind of a... Um, uh, um, a, um, a, loan, or a, a system where the kind of states which are sort of under economic pressure like Tasmania and South Australia do get sort of a, share, a bigger share of GST than places like New South Wales. So that works to some extent, but the overall, if you like, bucket of GST is, is still not enough to kind of give the states what they need to do their, their job properly. Yeah. As well, I think one of the important things to say is that according to some research done at UTS by um, Vince Mangione, uh, is that we've got the worst fiscal, vertical fiscal imbalance in, in the OECD. And so for Australia, that's an extremely important problem. How would we address that? Well, the federal government doesn't want to give up its, um, its its kind of resources. I mean, the GST was not a bad attempt under the Howard government to kind of um, give some of that federal taxing power back to the states. But the problem is the GST is not growing as fast as the kind of state's responsibility. So that, that kind of engine of growth of revenue for state governments is starting to slow down and sort of leaving governments a bit short again. So that wasn't a bad step. I mean, you could actually um, potentially... I don't know. Um, I think states may well need to look at things within their capacity and within their constitutional responsibility, like, like um, um, value capture and so forth, and, and things like land tax. I mean, they're things that state governments can do. So land tax, again, is one of those things which requires political leadership. To do so, instead of raising lots of money through stamp duty when properties are bought and sold, you actually have a sort of a low land tax base, which is levied on all properties, which raises the basic money to, um, you know, pay for for what you need to do.
0: Mm. And I guess that population growth feeds straight into this because densifying cities, uh, increasing urban populations, put more pressure on state governments in where these cities are located.
1: Yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, uh, I mean, to some extent, densification... Does save a bit of money, and that's one of the reasons why state governments like it. The infrastructure costs are not quite so high, although, although it depends very much on the context. Um, but, but a, a lot of a, still, lot, of, yeah, a lot of
0: people link up the population growth with density. They think that mm. with population growth, we necessarily will have density. And I guess by the response there, you don't necessarily think that we those two things go together.
1: Well, uh, look in an economic textbook, way they do. I mean, I mean that you can you can produce economic textbook. Um, uh, Graphs which show that you know as population rises, the kind of increase in population, increase in property values, increases uh, at all distances from the city. And if a, if the property values increase, that means you need a higher density to kind of support the economic rents which are sort of associated with that higher property value. So that there's an implicit you know market-driven kind of increase in density which comes about from population increase. Now, the trick in planning, this is where planning has to come in, is that it has to kind of be done properly in these different areas. So it can become a question, for example, of of do you destroy uh, kind of federation um, housing in Karinga and so forth, or do you kind of focus that around railway stations, you know? And that's where where planning comes in, is to distribute that kind of implicit increase in density, which comes about from market forces as you increase population, into the kind of right areas where it makes most planning sense. The federal government has
0: flagged a national urban policy agenda a couple of times and is this connected with the fiscal imbalance in any way
1: there are um proposals by the state government to have a special um special deal city deals with various sort of cities but um as far as i can see they're not going to go very far in terms of the sort of total task. so that they're going to help out for example building a stadium in townsville and doing a bit of work in launceston and and um Perhaps help pay for transport connections to the Western Sydney Airport, so those will all help. But I mean, they're just a small drop in the ocean. So they, they look they look good. They make the federal government look as if it's responding to the problem. But in fact, in terms of the total problem, it's just a just a drop in the bucket. So um, um, the federal government could do a lot more. Obviously, you know, it could, it could actually start raising loans and and sort of for for infrastructure for the states. Um, you know but the federal government again sort of has this same problem with debt that the state governments have it doesn't want to sort of it's already got a debt problem hanging over from the gst for example so you know the idea of increasing debt even further than it it, that it is now is kind of really out of the question so there's a problem there at the federal government as well
0: I, i guess the burning question here for people listening is some people are very against population growth there's a very strong in some sections of the community push against population and immigration so what would we say about that in terms of managing cities and urban planning?
1: Look I think um, to me um, I don't think there's enough debate about the kind of social and environmental sustainability issues of rapid population increase. Um, the social sustainability issue is a very difficult one and I, I don't want to go into that here but in environmental sustainability I think is very important one so um, if you look at the the kind of totality of the world and the kind of the, the kind of greenhouse emissions problem of across the world for example and the kind of the fact that now that we're consuming more of the earth's resources than uh, the earth's resources produce each year so we're now at about 1.8 Earths each year I think in terms of total consumption, the fact that we are encouraging population increase is really kind of in that wider global sustainability sense making it worse so, um you can say that for individuals you were giving these individuals a chance that coming to the country a, a great economic opportunity and that's great mm-hmm. but there's a there's a kind of trade-off against the kind of fact that global sustainability um in a sense by bringing people up to higher standard of living is actually getting worse so there's this kind of this 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 deep contradiction between higher standards of living and global sustainability and and, and i think that's the kind of you know, the, the the kind of equation which we really, really need to be debating a lot more. Mm. And would that debate be
0: around do we move out of cities or do we better manage our cities or is it a combination of those t- two things? Is the dream of everybody living in an urban space just that, a dream that we will, won't be able to
1: realise? Well, perhaps I can preface that by saying I think we do need a national population debate. So, for example... Um, what is, our, what is our population increase we need to keep our standards living at the level we want and to have the social and environmental sustainability that we want. So there's no there's no kind of debate about a national population policy which incorporates those. So I think that's needed first of all. And then once you've decided on a population increase, and it'll depend on part on where you put it, uh, then you start to talk about the fact that, okay, do you put it outside cities or inside cities? And I think there we're... Tend to be hostage to market forces. And I think the way that the economies are going is in terms of a very centralised economic kind of um, system, where the knowledge economy is increasing and the knowledge is increasingly focused in the kind of inner parts of the big cities, and therefore, that's a very difficult sort of thing. That's that's a kind of Western global phenomenon, if you like, in terms of economic development. So that. In a sense, we, we're going to be forced, I think, to have most of the population in the cities because there won't be much of an economy outside the cities that, that can support a big population. So to me, you know, it's a question of kind of having a, a rational um, national population policy debate in terms of sustainability and then sort of coming back to talk about how we then accommodate that within the cities in, in terms of better planning.
0: Gwen, thanks for joining us today.
1: Okay, very enjoyable. Thanks.
0: So that's it for this week. But remember, we'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a review via our iTunes podcast site. Just hit the subscribe link on our website at cityroadpod.org.